Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This week on WealthTrack, legendary investor Bill Miller shares his rationale for some of his more controversial investments, including Amazon, Valiant, and Bitcoin. He's next on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences. Rosalind P. Walter and the Fairholm Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. What makes a great investor? Well, I have interviewed several of this rare breed over my career, including some of the greats of the previous generation, the late Sir John Templeton, Peter Lynch, and Warren Buffett. They share several traits, a passion for investing and research, discipline, healthy skepticism about Wall Street and popular opinion, insatiable curiosity, voracious reading, and independent thinking. Sir John Templeton once said that it is impossible to produce superior performance unless you do something different. Well, one measure of doing something different is known as active share, discovered by researchers at the Yale School of Management. Active share is a measure of the percentage of stock holdings in a manager's portfolio that differs from the benchmark index. The researchers found that mutual fund managers with high active share outperform their benchmark indexes. Specifically, the researchers found that funds with an active share of 80% or higher beat their indexes by more than 2% before fees and by 1.5% or more after fees. The active share of this week's guest runs close to 100% most of the time. His portfolio is nothing like the S&P 500s. He is legendary value investor Bill Miller, and the proof is in the pudding. Miller is still the only mutual fund manager who has beaten the market for 15 years in a row. The record-setting winning streak occurred from 1991 to 2005 at his previous firm, Leg Mason, with his flagship Leg Mason Capital Management Value Trust Fund. Miller is now the chairman and chief investment officer of his own firm, Miller Value Partners, where he and his longtime co-portfolio manager, Samantha McLemore, run the mutual fund Miller Opportunity Trust, which he launched in 1999 as Leg Mason Opportunity Trust. Miller Opportunity Trust continues to beat its benchmark with a 25% gain last year and five-year annualized returns of nearly 18%. Never one to shy away from promising new technologies, Miller recently made headlines with his hedge fund MVP1, which invested in cryptocurrency Bitcoin at an average cost of around $350 per coin. At one point, it accounted for over 50% of the fund because of its spectacular rise. 
Miller will explain how he has handled that enviable problem. But I started by asking him about another holding which has been phenomenally successful and has had its share of controversy from the beginning. Amazon, which Miller bought when it first went public in 1997 at a split-adjusted stock price of under $2 a share. It's risen more than 600-fold since then. But what drew him to Amazon in the first place? Well, we bought Amazon on the IPO, and I'd actually met Jeff Bezos before the IPO. And we had something in common, which is we both went to the same high school, although not at the same time. But I was very impressed with his, um, his thinking through uh, uh, what Amazon was trying to do. And really, really, the, what I think is the case with Amazon now and was the case at the beginning is that the decision procedures that they use are the best that I've ever seen. They're completely rational. They're data-driven. Uh, they make a lot of mistakes, but, but that's by design. They want to they be experimental. And I think that what people have come to realize is that, that that model that they have is potentially disruptive, not just to retail, but to all kinds of whatever business they choose to go, you know, to go into. So the most recent is the Whole Foods acquisition. And that's right up their alley. That's, you know, it's, it's a thing where the demographics overlap with Amazon Prime. Um, it's a case where there's been uh, where there's high prices, which, which he, you know, loves high prices because he can lower them. Right. And their business model is such that that they, they bought about 460 stores, I think. So they, they have the ability to do distribution through that, do pickup through that, and also to build out thousands of more stores. Grocery is a gigantic area. It's global. It's exactly the kind of thing that it's low margin. There's been, low, there's been little innovation. And so I, I think that that model that they have is, is unique in that it, it can address markets that are just gigantic. AWS, for example, which is a high margin business where they're number one by a wide margin. Um, I asked Jeff once, I said, what's the addressable market here? And he said, trillions and trillions. And that'll be, that company will probably hit 20 billion of revenue in 2018. That'll be the fastest company to 20 billion in revenue in history. The, summing it up, I think right. Amazon can grow probably 20 to 25% a year for a long period of time, at least the next three years. And, and if the valuation of the business, which if you actually think about it in a creative way is not that expensive, then it should double in the next three years. And so early on, you saw that vision. I mean, I, I remember you know, he was going into the book business for crying out loud, selling books online, and everybody thought, well, this is a ridiculous low-margin business, which it was. So, so what, is the, what are the processes that you saw that are so applicable to so many you know, higher-margin businesses where he can come in with lower margins? Well, it's, it's a direct distribution model, effectively. Yeah. And so it doesn't have the kind of supply chain that most companies like Walmart Walmart have. It, it has to have warehouses, obviously. But that's, again, those are highly, highly automated. But basically, right. it was, it, Amazon is, is doing broadly to, um, uh, to retail what Dell did in the computer business. When, I, when the computers first came out, IBM had huge market share, and people said nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. But the problem was that they had, you know, you had MathBox and you had, you had computer stores, and those have all disappeared because Dell sold direct to the, Dell sold direct to the customer right. and so could undercut. And that's the same thing that, that Amazon did. One of the things that in the book businesses, you know, bookstores, even big ones like Barnes & Noble, they can only carry so many titles, whereas Amazon can carry every, every, effectively every title in, uh, that's, that's, that's in yeah. So the selection was much greater, and they had a competitive advantage on the cost side. And uniquely to that particular business, I think what, what drew uh, Jeff to it, is that in that particular business, you don't have any inventory risk. 
So there were people in 2001 and 2002 when Amazon was losing money, said, oh, they're going to be bankrupt because you know, the, the vendors will cut them off. They, they could return books. The, the model of this, you can return the books back to the distributor and get full credit for it. So you didn't have that kind of risk, and people weren't, weren't thinking about that. And the other thing is that when they would, I remember some people saying that, well, even if Amazon is as good as Home Depot or as good as Walmart, uh, the greatest retailers you know, at the time mm -hmm. in, in history, it's still overpriced. But if you look at the PE multiple, and those were, you know, th those were poor comparisons because it wasn't like Walmart or Home Depot, it was like Dell. And if you looked at the business model, it was almost identical with Dell, and it had almost identical the growth the, the growth trajectory that that Dell had. Now their margins, you know, even in even in uh, the overall margins now are uh, well above those of Walmart, for example, and that's that's telling because Walmart consistently earns about 14% on invested capital, mm -hmm. way above their cost of capital. And Amazon is not showing those kinds of returns on overall capital, but that's just because it chooses not to. Right. So it, that's not a leap of faith that you're saying, but you know the numbers are there, but they're just not what, what, reporting when, them? Or Well, well it's, again, it's, it's a question. I remember thinking about Amazon the way that, uh, or from learning some stuff from John Malone. Uh -huh. The cable business, and I think I think when John took over TCI Telecommunications Inc. became the CEO, he, he was CEO for 25 years, and he sold it to AT and T. And one dollar invested in TCI was nine hundred dollars. 25 years later, I don't think he reported a profit ever. Yeah. So it was, but he created huge value. So it's not about the, it's not about you know gap profits. It's mm -hmm. about value creation. Amazon came public at a 400 million dollar market cap. It's got a five almost $600 billion market cap. They haven't sold any stock. Mm -hmm. so they've created massive amounts of value, which you know, the market is, the market was correct on that. And what are the risks to Amazon? I mean, what, what would cause you to reduce your holdings, for instance, or can you imagine that? Oh, sure. That? I mean, I, you yeah. know, I, when people ask me, like, what's the best decision you ever made? It was buying Amazon on the IPO, and what's the worst, ever selling a share? Right. It would be bigger than our whole fund now is if we, you know, if we... If you'd held on. If you just held on to the whole... Yeah, to the whole thing. So part of what makes Amazon so interesting in comparison to Google and Facebook, for example, which are two great companies, right? And um, and we bought Facebook on the IPO. And but what's different is that those two companies together have a have a uh, over a trillion dollars, just about a trillion dollars worth of market cap. Mm -hmm. And in their core business, they are addressing the uh, global ad market. That's basically what they're now. They're, they have other things in Google, especially, but that's that's almost all of their revenue. And uh, but the global ad market is only about $600 billion. So you got a, a trillion of market cap attacking a $600 billion market. Right. And with Amazon, U.S. retail alone is over $5 trillion, and global retail is close to $60 trillion. And, and, so, and that's before you even add in something like AWS. So Amazon's addressable market, that's a $500 billion company chasing a 50 or $60 trillion market. So the growth possibilities over time are just, you know, tremendous, even, even though it's done so well. Which leads me to the next question, because you mentioned uh, Google and Facebook. Uh, wh what is your view now of Google and what's your view of Facebook? I, I, I mean, we own, we own Facebook now. We don't own Google. I think, oh, okay. I, I think, I think Google's attractive in here. You know, we might, we might own it again. It was just right. a question of, of positioning in the overall, in the overall portfolio. portfolio. And I, I, thought that, I thought that Amazon had better growth prospects than, than Google. And so rather than add Google to something, we just let our Amazon position grow. So that's, you know, it's, it's like two positions in one. Right. I mentioned, you know, new technology and again, and, and looking at companies that early on that, that others 
think are just are too speculative. And one of your investments in your hedge fund now is Bitcoin. It's not a company. Um, so, you know, what, what's, what's the new technology that's drawn you to Bitcoin? And again, it's in your hedge fund. It is not in your mutual fund. Um, <clears throat> I, I think I've, I've first got involved with Bitcoin and learned about it um, uh, by a book that Nathaniel Popper wrote, which was sort of a history of Bitcoin. And then, then I sponsored a thing at the Santa Fe Institute called Money Past, Present, and Future, where we had uh, cryptographers, we had economists, we had mathematicians, we had sociologists, anthropologists, all talking about money and its various forms and how it had evolved. And kind of looking at, at, at what Bitcoin was, and it was trading around $300 at the, at the time. And it, it struck me then that it was so new and so different and, and not initially easy to understand and still, I think, subject to massive misunderstanding, but that it was the first real technological innovation in, in money and in finance, really in thousands of years. The whole ecosystem that's now growing up around Bitcoin has kind of ironically, for, for almost every investment, the, the higher price it goes, especially if it goes up a lot and fast, internet stocks in the late night nights, they're much less attractive because mm-hmm. uh, they're they get overpriced and the hype gets into them, and and I think that Bitcoin though it's it's in in many ways less risky today, at wherever it is fifteen thousand dollars right. than it was at five hundred dollars. And and that's and, so and, counter the way you normally think as a value. Investor. Oh yeah, no, yeah, yeah. But the but part of it is now that what you have is you have, uh, uh, I mean, Japan made the big leap in this in last March when the government declared that Bitcoin was legal tender. Right. And, uh, and then they announced that they were going to license exchanges and regulate them. And it took the market about a month to figure out that that was a huge deal. And that if Japan was going to do it, then probably other countries were going to do it. And that it really was on a path to respectability. And that's been part of you know, my thesis with it is that you, you have this path that's underway. We have now Bitcoin futures on the CME and the CBOE. We've had filings now for, for Bitcoin ETFs. If you look at Bitcoin around the world, there's very little, I, I believe that very little of it has been financed with debt. Uh, and it's a non-correlated asset. So I, it's one of those things where if you have a you know, family office, like why wouldn't you own 1% of your assets in Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. Just because of the, the, the potential is so large. And, and what's, what's interesting too is, as I said, it's, it's only in your MVP, Miller Value Partners, one hedge fund. Right. And you've made a decision so far not to include it in your mutual funds. And, and why is that? Why have you made that decision? Well, what the mutual funds, even though the Opportunity Fund has the uh, ability to do anything a 40-act fund can do, um, it's, it, it, it would be, I think, a leap consistent or, or inconsistent with what we've done in the, in the past. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out, mm-hmm. but it would be more likely uh, that we'd own it through futures if we decided to, or even more so an ETF if, it, if an ETF comes comes along. I am not a Bitcoin evangelist. In fact, I'm not even a Bitcoin believer. I'm a Bitcoin observer and just trying to observe what's going on in that space, trying to understand the technology, understand the supply demand dynamics, understand how it might fit into a broader monetary system. It it struck me as uh, completely worthwhile to have a small position because, again, it it could become a very large position, which it has done in the the hedge fund now. Hedge fund, right. But you you decided, and it it was at one point it was 50% 50% of the hedge fund, 
and you've decided to spin it off to take a large portion of that Bitcoin and spin it off to the hedge fund investors, right? As a yes. separate fund. Yeah, we, yeah we're gonna, that's that's what we're going to do, and right. and, uh, and we'll you know we'll, we'll charge a lower fee than we did, and and they can you know sell do, it, they can hold it, they can right. do whatever they well, they can do whatever they want with it, but um, it, it presented too great, I think, a risk to the overall. Uh, hedge fund. Uh, if, if if Bitcoin goes down fifty percent this year and it's fifty percent of the fund, uh, there'll be a lot of unhappy right. people in it. And now now if it's spent off to the side, they can they can make the call if they want it or not. And and that was a, another actually interesting concept that you had told me in a, a prior interview. We did a podcast on Bitcoin, which is on wealthtruck.com several weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you said is uh, is, is that you should probably you know have maybe one percent of your net worth in Bitcoin, because it doesn't matter if you lose 1% of your net worth, right, or if your liquid net worth. Yeah, I mean, I've, 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 I should have, you know, in retrospect, put more than, you know, 1% right. of my net worth in it, so should everybody at one, one point in time. But if I, if I didn't own it today, I would still probably put at least 1% of my, of my net worth in it, because, again, if it goes to zero, you only lost 1%. Right. So, I mean, it's not, it's not going to be life-changing. Um, but, it, but on the other hand, if it goes from 15000 to... 150,000 or to 300,000, you know, and again, it may go to zero. I don't know. But, but certainly the, the trajectory has been uh, higher over time. And again, it's not owned right. widely. It's, it's, I think there's, there's a massive amount of speculation in the so-called ICOs and the altcoins, which makes very little sense long term from an economic perspective. But again, there was a lot of speculation in internet names in 1999. And if you owned, you know, if you owned Amazon at that point in time or eBay or some of those, you did great even though they went down when the rest of them crashed and burned. Right. And just, just to finish this, the Bitcoin part of this interview is that to, it, the context is important that you're still viewing it as it could you know, go to zero. Unlikely, but it could. And therefore, as an, as an investment, you're putting it in a, a different category than you are the companies that you own uh, in Miller Opportunity, for instance. Yeah, it's, it's all about sizing the position properly right. and understanding the risks and I, I do think that, again, I think it's less risky because there's so much of an ecosystem that's been built around it. Well, let's talk about some of the companies that we can invest in with you, if, if we so choose, uh, the more traditional businesses. So what are some of the new technology companies that, or companies that are using new technology that you own that you're most excited about in the portfolio? Well, one of the things that we, that we have historically done is, is I would say... Um, uh, embrace complexity and especially controversy. And so one company that has both of those things is uh, Intrexon, which is a synthetic biology company. So what they're doing, or, or as they call it, bioengineering, mm-hmm. and, and as critics call it, you know, it's a GMO, genetically modified organism kind of company, and it's, it's controversial, although the science is, I think, um, even, I mean, I, I think Climate change is real, but but uh, but there is some controversy about about climate change. Mm-hmm. Whereas there, there's no scientific controversy that I've come across many reptiles about about genetic modification of any right. of any sort. Nonetheless, but it just it's, is it's, politi- com- it's politically right controversial. Yeah. So right. so Intrexon was recently selling close to a five-year low, close to the lowest price it's traded at since it came public, and just on December 29th, the last trading day of the year, their CEO. R.J. Kirk bought, bought over a million shares of stock. Not a million dollars worth of stock, a million, million shares, shares of stock at around, I think, 11 and a half. And it, it, it then jumped, I think, $1.50 the, uh, the, the first trading day of, of this year. But, but that's a company where it, it's, it's a little bit like Bitcoin in the sense of, uh, could it go to zero? Well, it probably can't go to zero because, first of all, it, you know, he owns two-thirds of the stock and, 
and it doesn't need any capital to, to speak of. But um, it could languish. It could, it could go to two or mm -hmm. something like mm -hmm. that. But um, it, it's like Bitcoin in the sense that the, the right tail of that distribution, the possibilities are so endless that um, I think it's worth owning. But not, it's, not a, it's not a company that, that we think... Uh, I recommended it a couple of years ago, and I said, it's, I said it, the reason that I like it is it has no... It has no sales. It has no earnings. Even doesn't have any products, mm -hmm. so it can't possibly disappoint you in any of those, <laughs> any of those, any of those things. I, we think of it as a portfolio of, of real options. So they actually now do have, some products, products. that have just come to market. One is a genetically modified apple that doesn't turn brown. You know, when you cut an apple open, it turns right. brown fairly quickly. So that's that's uh, hitting the supermarkets now. I've I've had it. It's very good. They have a genetically modified salmon. And so these farm-raised salmon are, are subject to all kinds of problems, you know, antibiotics and sea lice and everything else. And they have, they have uh, genetically modified salmons that they can grow twice as fast and use half the feed and not have any of those problems. So they don't have antibiotics and don't have sea lice. That, that's just hitting the market up in, up in Canada. But that's one of those, I mean, stock was $70 a few years ago and now it's 12 or 13. And that's one of the kind of the hallmarks of your investment uh, strategy has always been like any good shopper, if the price goes lower and you like the product, you buy more of it, usually. Exactly the opposite of what behaviorally we want to do, which is, which is what an, another uh, thing in your marketing for Miller Value Partners that you, uh, you mentioned that um, you, know, you get an edge from understanding and capitalizing on human behavioral tendencies as well. So where are, where are you capitalizing on human behavioral tendencies? The airlines. We've owned the airlines for several years. The airline industry has been one of the worst industries in the history of the world. Profit-wise. Yeah, in, term, right. in terms of actually owning the, you know, owning the securities. But the, the industry consolidated, mostly got consolidated into three big carriers. If you had Southwest, you've got 90% of the industries in four carriers. And you've, they've been free cash flow positive now for the last several years. In the previous 25 years before consolidation, there were two years of cash generation. Right. And, and I think now that a company like Delta, which, which um, which is a very large position for us. Um, we think they'll be profitable in the next recession. That would never happen in the history of the airlines before. But they still trade at about the same valuation they did when they were terrible. So people still, even though the stocks, our average cost on, on our airlines is in the single digits and they're all in the $50 range right now, we think that they're all worth 50 to 100% more than they're trading at. So I think that's an example of trying to A, think long-term, B, be patient, and understand that it takes a long time for people's perceptions to change. But, but when, when we like stocks that are on the new low list, I mean, Valiant's our biggest position right now. Right. And that was, a, you know, that company went from, I think, initially $15 when we looked at it and decided not to buy it, and it went to $200. That, I was unhappy about that one. But then it went from $200 all the way down to $8. And, uh, but if you ask people what they, what they thought Valiant did last year, they would say, oh, well, it was terrible. Well, it was up over 50% last year. It and was, you owned it. Yeah, yep. well, yeah, but I mean, we, we started buying it way too soon. Started buying it in the high 30s, but we also paid eight or nine mm -hmm. for it. And, you know, we, we still think it's probably worth at least double the current price. What do you, you know, kind of say to the people who just say, you know, Bill, you're, you're way too risky, you're way too volatile. Um, well, it's, I, I would, it's I would, too dangerous. I would, I, would, I would say, well, first, first we, they need to get the facts correct. So if you look at the whole 35-year history that I have, I outperformed in down markets 70% uh, of the time. So what people remember back in 2008 when we had a terrible, terrible year, or 2011, and kind of forget that that's in the context of, of a very different longer-term right. record. Right. And again, we've outperformed over history, and in every case where the fund has gone down more than 15% in a 12-month in a period, 
it is the right thing to do is to, been to buy it. Just like if a high quality stock goes down, uh, you should be probably thinking about adding to it, not cutting it back. But again, the behavioral tendency of people is when the fund goes down, they want to sell it. And when it goes right. up, they want to buy it. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what would you have us all own some of in a diversified portfolio? Well, I would say I would say Amazon would be right up there just because just because Jeff is, uh, you know, as I agree with Warren Buffett, who said he's an authentic business genius. Right. And, and the addressable market they have is so large. And the growth rate for companies, you don't see that kind of growth rate in a company of that size. But I think that's the kind of name you can buy and put away for, you know, for many years and not worry about it. And, um, uh, and again, I, th I think financials in this kind of environment are, are very solid. So, you know, the, the less risky ones, we own, we own J.P. Morgan, we own, right. own City. Bank of but, America, City. Yeah. Own, you know, all, and, uh, but then on the other hand, in the, you know, we also own uh, One Main Financial, which is the largest subprime lender in the company. I think mm -hmm. it's the cheapest financial out there. It's about, around five and a half, six times this year's earnings, and the earnings should grow 15, 20 percent for the next, certainly next three to, three to five years. We're going to leave it there. Bill Miller, always a treat to have you on Wealth Track. Thank Thanks you so Thanks. much. Pleasure to be here. At the close of every wealth truck, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is follow Bill Miller's rule of thumb for Bitcoin. If you want to own Bitcoin or other highly speculative crypto-related assets, only invest what you don't mind losing entirely. We recently did a podcast with Miller devoted solely to Bitcoin, which you can hear on wealthtruck.com, in which he shared the advice of an early Bitcoin investor who recommended putting no more than 1% of one's liquid net worth in Bitcoin. That way you can participate, but not bet the ranch. Well, next week we have a rare interview with legendary value investor Jeremy Grantham, who called the last three major market turns. Is he still bullish now? We'll find out. In this week's exclusive extra feature on our website, Bill Miller explains why his biggest current research project is Bitcoin-related, the history, uses, and future of money. In the meantime, please continue to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for watching. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.